spiritual formation and looking at some of the things that help us to be transformed into the image of Christ. And uh, we're not focusing so much on dramatic events, but on the routine, ordinary circumstances of life and the opportunities we have in those to develop healthy habits. And Lyndon read Psalm 46, so that will be our scripture for today. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word, which is so readily available to us, not so much in other parts of the world, but we thank you that it is going out more and more. And uh, we know that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. It's too important, because these are the, the words of life, the words of eternal life. So whenever we come to them, we, we know this is what we need to hear. This is the truth. This is the absolute truth. There's so much opinion, there's so much speculation, there's so much political correctness that tries to pressure us to conform to the pattern of the world. But we want to respond only to your truth because your words are the words of life. So we thank you for them. And speak to us today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We said last week that there are, of course, some very dramatic events in the life of faith. There are blessings, there are miracles, there's victories, divine interventions, and sometimes even revivals. They used to call these mountaintop experiences. The only problem is that they don't happen often enough. The truth is we spend more of our time in the valleys than at altitude. And that's partly because mountaintop experiences are not sustainable. You can't live at the 21,000 foot level indefinitely. There's not enough oxygen. There's no food sources. And you'd be spending most of your time alone. And that's why God brings us back into the valleys, where life is more routine and ordinary, but also more sustainable. It would be a mistake to spend all of our time just reminiscing about the good old days up on the summit and waiting for the next ascent. The best use of our time in the daily routines of ordinary life is focusing on practicing healthy habits. And that's what Paul talks about in Philippians 2 when he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Last week we talked about that in relation to Psalm 42. We talked about how to replace these fire-breathing emotions with righteous attitudes, which means that we stop listening to the lies we tell ourselves and start telling ourselves the truth. Today in Psalm 46, we're going to talk about how to improve our recovery time. I've been very interested in the topic of recovery ever since my first severe panic attack. It happened uh, a long time ago in a galaxy not that far away. It was at an inner city gospel mission. Our youth group had gone there to do an evening service 
And we brought testimonies, we sang hymns and choruses, I did a devotional, we prayed. It was a great experience. You could really feel God's presence. It was all good until I encountered a homeless man who turned out to be demon-possessed. It wasn't violent or obvious, not to anyone else. I was really the only one who realized what was happening. And because I wasn't prepared for this, my deflector shields weren't up. So it hit me like a taser. It was very traumatic. And I became utterly disoriented. I was even having trouble breathing because my nice, safe, evangelical world had been rocked by seismic force. Very much like the description in this psalm. Psalm 46 is not about green pastures and still waters. It's about those traumatic events that leave us shaken and stirred. And many of you have had those in your life. This psalm talks about evil forces and rebellion against God. Verse, says, verse 6 says, the nations are in an uproar. There you have ISIS and Russia and the zombie apocalypse. In verse 2, we read about natural disasters. The earth gives away and the mountains fall into the sea. So we've got earthquakes and avalanches and tsunamis, the kind of disasters that trigger widespread panic. The sky is falling. Run for your lives. And that's exactly what I did. I called our youth group together and we fled. It was that basic instinct, fight or flight. This was my first really severe panic attack. And I was in a state of shock. And even though the pastor prayed for me that night, I was still in severe distress. Now, I don't know how long these anxiety attacks are supposed to last. But mine continued uninterrupted for three days. And each day was worse. I just sunk deeper into a fear that told me that the balance of power in the universe had somehow shifted, that Satan now had the advantage and that he was out for revenge. And every day got darker until I thought I, I would never recover. That was my first intense experience. There have been other episodes, and of course, each time, I eventually recovered. Which always surprised me, because when you're in the midst of that, fear convinces you that there's no hope and that not even God can help you. But my fear was exaggerating. Liar, liar. I don't know even why we listen to that. No matter how hopeless our situation looks, we will recover. The only question is, how long will it take? I'm really interested in speeding up my recovery time. So what's your personal best? These panic anxiety afflictions reminds me of an experience I had during my first year of pastoring in Edmonton. After a few months after I arrived, we had a break-in. They were trying to get into the room where the safe was located. And they only had two options. They either had a break through the wall or go in through the ceiling. And so they chose the ceiling. Now, they never got into the safe, but they left quite a mess. And so we had to pay to clean it up and get it fixed. Unfortunately, a few months later, it happened again. Same MO, same results. So we decided enough is enough. We're going to install an alarm system. And so for the next 20 years, we never had another break-in. 
Now this system had an external siren that could be heard all over the neighborhood. So whatever you do, don't trigger the alarm. Well, when you first have one of these installed, it's a bit intimidating because you unlock the door and you activate what sounds like a time bomb. And you have 30 seconds to disarm it. It's kind of like Mission Impossible. But disarming it is not really complicated. You don't need to be a MacGyver. You just punch in a four-digit code. It's simple enough as long as you remember the numbers. Apparently, that was too much for those of us who suffered from episodes of temporary amnesia. I can still vividly remember my first incident. I was absolutely sure I punched in the correct code, but it kept beeping, it was hot. I had 20 seconds, 19, 18. Did I have the numbers in the right order? This is no time to have a dyslexic episode. Let me try this one. No, that's the photocopier, pin number, 10 seconds, nine, eight, how hard can this be? There are only 100,000 possible combinations. If only I had more. At that exact moment, the book of Revelation came alive. There was unleashed upon me an acoustical avalanche of fire and brimstone. The siren was a deafening noise that I think could be heard from St. Albert to Sherwood Park. What are people going to think? What are those Baptists doing now? I can imagine neighbors heading for their bomb shelters. Across the street at the high school, the students were crouching under their desks, hoping to survive a nuclear attack. In nearby ponds, geese ascended and began to migrate south. I think it was part of the reason why Alberta has no more rats. No, not all of these events are historically accurate, at least not as far as I know. But when that siren goes off, you start to panic. Your blood pressure rises. You forget to breathe. You feel absolutely overwhelmed and helpless. It's a nightmare. It's a really good time to quit the ministry and get out of town. Well, in the midst of the chaos, I had a brief moment of clarity. I remembered that in the event of a false alarm, you call the monitoring company, which I did. And after identifying myself and answering a few skill testing questions, they turned the siren off using four simple numbers. Now these were English numbers. They were not Egyptian hieroglyphics or Chinese characters not ocho, cuatro, cinco de mayo, it was just four simple numbers. And the siren stopped immediately. Just as the police cruiser arrived in the parking lot, is there a problem officer? Yes, I understand, my first mistake is free, next time we'll have to pay a fine. And yes, I do have the right to remain silent. The whole episode lasted no longer than maybe 10 minutes. And then the crisis was over. And all it took was four numbers. And once those four numbers were put in, it was a beautiful day in the neighborhood. 
The sun was shining, the birds were singing, people were coming out of their bomb shelters. It was a total recovery. If only that could happen in our lives. If only there was a code to disarm our anxiety attacks. Well, the writer of Psalm 46 discovered the code. Verse 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give away and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. When the mountains quake and the earth gives way, we have a refuge, a safe place. God is our refuge and our strength. Verse 6 says, the nations are in uproar, the kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When we're overwhelmed by fear, we have a fortress. A few years ago, the Calgary Zoo was ravaged by the great flood. So now they're building a wall, thanks to Trump. A wall right around the island, high enough so that no future flood will ever overwhelm the barrier. God is our fortress. So that when we set our minds on things above, we will never be overwhelmed by that flash flood of fear. Verse 8, Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now this verse is very intense because you've got the past, present, and future. As far as the past tense, it says, Come and see the works of the Lord. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. If you look at God's resume, as to what he's already done in the past, you can see very clearly he's already solved all the biggest problems of history. They're already solved. He has solved the problem of sin. God has solved the problem of death. He has solved the problem of damnation. God has already in the past solved all the biggest problems we will ever face. And then just read his Bible and write down everything he has already accomplished. By the time you get to volume 30, it should sink in. God is doing great works. Come see the works the Lord has done. He has never failed. His promises have always come true. That's the past tense. So far, so good. Is any of that going to change? Well, that brings us to the future tense. And here's a spoiler alert. Verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Whatever else happens in the future, this, or this will be the final outcome. Everything is moving in the direction toward this climax. God's exaltation. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. We don't see that yet because it's not trending right now. Not in our culture. Irreverence is rampant. People ridicule him. They ignore him. They defy him. They blame him. 
But this temporary insanity is going to be permanently interrupted and God will be exalted among the nations and in all the earth. And nothing can prevent or even delay that scheduled historical event. We just have to wait for it. So if the past is evidence of, evidence of God's sovereignty and the future verdict will be his exaltation, what is our present status? How should we then live? In the light of all the things that God has already done, in the light of all the things that he will do, how should we live right now? Verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. There's a code for all of our fears and anxieties for when we feel like panicking. Be still and know that he is God. How do you turn the siren off? Be still. Which means uh, probably maybe clear your mind, keep calm and chive on, find your happy place. No, that's not what it means. You don't drop out, you don't ignore reality. You face the facts, the fearful facts, but with the knowledge that God is your refuge, he's your fortress. God is bigger than your biggest problem. In fact, when my problems seem bigger than God, it's an optical delusion created by my anxiety. When we're still, we can see God as he really is. When we, get, when we panic, we can't see him and our problems seem far bigger than God. We don't comprehend God adequately. We underestimate him. Be still and remind yourself of who God is. When anxiety attacks and panic spreads, you need to know the code. Be still and know that I am God. That's what restores your peace. What I saw at that uh, gospel mission set off sirens in my soul. It was so deafening I couldn't concentrate on anything. I forgot everything God had already done for me. And I felt forsaken and abandoned. And that siren continued to torment me for three days. I thought it would never stop. But then I had a moment of clarity. That's when God asked me a question. Hey, why don't you uh, read your Bible? Bible? Oh yeah, the Bible, I've heard of it, yeah. I forgot all about the Bible. So I opened it, and the first verse I read was John 14.1, where it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Now, I'd read that verse many times before. It's a nice verse. It's a kind that they put on plaques and you can hang them up on your wall. But now, in this situation, in my distress and in my panic, this became the truth that set me free. You see, I was deceived. I thought I didn't have a choice. But that was a lie. I thought there was nothing I could do. We always have a choice. Because I noticed one little three-letter word in this verse that just jumped out at me. It says, do not let. 
That was the key word, let. To let, to allow, to give permission, to enable. I had let my heart be troubled. I had allowed that to happen. That was on me, my bad. Because I had another choice. A choice is between alternatives. Pepsi or Coke, Flames or Oilers. We have a choice, right? Well, we also have a choice when we're panicking. Let your heart be troubled or trust in God. There was an alternative. I actually had a choice. Letting my heart be troubled was definitely the wrong choice. It was not working out, so I chose the alternative to trust God. I could make that decision. It's kind of like withdrawing money from a bankrupt enterprise and depositing it in an eternal trust. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I realized I could do that, I recovered. It took maybe 10 seconds for that realization to sink in. And it set me free. But it took me three days to figure out that I needed to trust God in that crisis. I think anybody else could have realized that in less than three minutes. It took me three days. In fact, we had a girl with us who was a young Christian who was bewildered. She said, why did we run? We have God. She figured it out right away. Remember last week in James 4, 7, we said, submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee? The Bible makes it very clear that when it comes to temptation, we always run. If there's a temptation, you run. But when it comes to the tempter, you resist because he is the one that's got to do the running. It took me three days to figure out. That's embarrassing. That's got to be the slowest recovery time since... uh, since Thomas the disciple 2,000 years ago after the resurrection. I want to improve my recovery time. And I have lots of opportunities to do that in this coming year. When I look at the Bible, I see many examples of this. One day, David went into battle. And when he came back, a raiding party had uh, taken the women and children of their encampment. And it says in 1 Samuel 30, David and his men wept until they had no strength left to weep. It says David was greatly distressed and the men were talking of stoning him. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. David strengthened himself and recovered. And then they went out and they recovered everything that had been lost and taken and nothing was missing. In 1 Samuel 14, Saul routs the Philistines and he's intoxicated with overconfidence. And so he binds his army to an oath. He says, no man shall eat until evening before I have been avenged on my enemies. So the soldiers couldn't eat, but they were fighting. It takes energy, it takes strength. They were exhausted. Now Saul's son, Jonathan, had not heard the oath. So during his pursuit, he found some honey. And it says, when he ate it, his eyes brightened. He recovered his strength. I love that image. His eyes brightened. You know, when somebody encourages you, 
and it really impacts you. Your eyes brighten. You can tell by a person's face that something has changed. The eyes brightened because he took honey. And Psalm 19 says the the word of God is sweeter than honey. Yeah. We need to recover when we are discouraged and depressed and downcast. When our strength is gone, when we are overwhelmed. We need to find the honey that's in God's word. Ephesians 4.26 says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. You need to recover before the end of business this day. Don't let it drag on. Psalm 35, 30 verse 5 says, weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That's talking about recovery. I want to experience that kind of recovery. I don't want to drag it on and on and on. I want to experience the relief and the joy that comes from recovery. John 14.1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Trust is not that complicated. We exercise trust all the time. But trust is so powerful. This is the antidote to our discouragements. And it's not slow release, it's fast acting. You can feel the effects in a matter of moments. And that's exactly what Psalm 46.10 is all about. Be still and know that I am God. You can trust me. Look at all I've done in the past. And know that in the future I will be exalted. So what you're experiencing right now is in the context of my sovereignty. I am your fortress. I am your strength. You can trust me. It's all about trust. In fact, I can't think of one problem I've ever had that wasn't resolved by trusting God. It's just so powerful. You overcome evil with good, you overcome fear with trust, and that's the code. As soon as you enter the code, the siren stops. That's what Paul was referring to in Philippians chapter four, when he says, the Lord is near, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all your understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul was in a Roman dungeon. He was on death row, but he wasn't panicking. He was experiencing peace because he knew the code. I also know the code. In the midst of crises, people have often asked me, why are you so calm? And I will say, well, it's because I'm heavily sedated. I don't feel a thing. Well, no, I, I do feel it. But I also know the code. I just have to use it sooner to speed up my recovery time. This is another healthy habit, which is a building block in spiritual formation, transforming us into the image of Christ. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. You see, you too have the right 
to remain silent. Let's pray.